Our message this morning will be found in Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14, and uh, we'll start at verse 1, and I believe we're going to verse 5. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. This morning we are faced with a very familiar point of contention in the early church. And that is the issue of food and drink. It is not the first time this has come up in Paul's ministry, as he dealt with this very issue in the Corinthian church. Unlike in Corinth, I don't get the sense that this was an issue in the Roman church. There's a few reasons for that. Paul has, up to this point, never actually visited the church at Rome, but by every indication he has been very encouraged by the reports he has heard. He says in Romans chapter 1, verse 8, I thank my God through, through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. I don't see Paul's instruction to the church in Romans 14 as a rebuke, but rather an urging for them to stay the course. In Romans 15 verse 14, he says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. Near the end of his letter, he, as he is urging them, urging them to note and avoid those that are causing divisions and offenses in the church, he once again notes that your obedience has become known to all. But the Roman church is believed to be a diverse group, meaning there would be both Jew and Gentile Christians coming together out of their particular worldviews which would have been extremely different from one another. And they came to worship the, the one true God. We see the amazing outworking of the gospel in different cultures, races, and backgrounds coming together under one umbrella, united in Jesus Christ. But the flesh is still at war with our regenerated hearts. And this particular issue of food and drink and observation of days would have been one of the greatest points of possible contention and conflict between Christians in the time of Paul's ministry. Thus we see it in, in, I believe, in Galatians and also in Corinthians. The Roman church would have been no exception. Do we keep this day? What about those laws of Leviticus? How about the Sabbath or the ceremonial days? And so on. And how do we function in one body with such vast amounts of opinions on these matters? This chapter carries over tons of application for us in these matters. As Darren mentioned last Sunday, Romans is divided into different sections of Paul's theology. He takes the reader through a very step-by-step, systematic breakdown of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I won't take the time to go through them again this morning, but starting in chapter 12, we see a shift take place as Paul begins to instruct the church on this issue as well as various other issues that will be of vital importance to this Roman church. If we were to put a label on these application chapters, as you could call them, 
I would agree with John Piper in that they teach the application of the second greatest commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So I really hope to bring that out, bring that theme in this message, loving your neighbor as yourself. Romans 13, verses 8 to 10 says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. This command is a continuation of Paul's appeal earlier in chapter 12 for the brethren to present their bodies as a living sacrifice. First in chapter 13, in our Christian love to the world, in the world, and now in 14, within the body. Referring to this body, Paul says in Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 3, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a matter worthy in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness with patience bearing with one another in love then it has the word eager eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace we are to be eager the word indicates to make haste to be prompt to be diligent make it your utmost priority to maintain this unity amongst yourselves That, I believe, is Paul's heart as he teaches these great truths of Romans 14. Unity for the sake of Christ and the glory of God. So with that in mind, let's get into the text where we will try to understand what it means to glorify God in receiving one another. The first point will be, we are to welcome but not to debate over opinions. In other words, in this context, reasonings in the mind. The second point will be we are not to take God's place as judge. So uh, let's pray first, and then we'll get into the text. Lord God, we come before you this morning, and uh, we're faced with a difficult situation this morning in our body. And we know that as members of one body, we grieve together, and uh, we all hurt. God, teach us how, how this will look in 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 dealing with with our hurting members, with the Dick family. Teach us, give us much wisdom. Um, we will say a lot of wrong things, uh, trying to help. Um, I pray that our, our, our goal this morning and from here on would be just to be there for them, um, uphold them in our prayers. Um, I, I just pray for much wisdom. I'm... I'm a lot of us struggle in this area. We haven't dealt with this before. Um, but God, you know all things, and you will keep us and uphold us through this. I just pray for the message this morning. I pray that you would give me clarity of speech um, to proclaim your word and uh, that there would be something here for everyone to take home this morning and, and think on. I just pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. As for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him. It has also been translated weak. Maybe I already said weak in the faith, but anyway, the ESV says weak in faith. 
It has also been translated weak in the faith. So here we have two different types of people in the church who are of the faith. Paul is making a distinction here. You have the strong and then you have the weak. Let's lay a bit of a foundation and define some things first before we go into our application this morning. If you look at verse 2, we see that the issue between the weak and the strong is a matter of one person is abstaining from various food and drink, and a little further on, the weak observes certain days and the strong doesn't. So what is in view here? It's important to note that Paul uses the language of clean versus unclean in verse 14 of the same chapter. So what you have here is not something like vegetarianism or simple food preferences based on health. These weak brothers are avoiding this type of food for far bigger reasons. John MacArthur in his commentary book titled One Faithful Life says this, The Greeks and Romans were polytheistic, worshipping many gods, and polydemonistic, believing in many evil spirits. They believed that the evil spirits would try to invade human beings by attaching themselves to food before it was eaten, and that the spirits could be removed only by the foods being sacrificed to a god. The sacrifice was meant not only to gain favor with the god, but also to cleanse the meat from demonic contamination. Such decontaminated meat was offered to the gods as a sacrifice. That which was not burned on the altar was served at wicked pagan feasts. What was left was sold in the market. After conversion, believers resented eating such food bought out of idol markets because it reminded sensitive Gentile believers of their previous pagan lives and the demonic worship. MacArthur is speaking of the Gentile, but this would have been a significant issue to either Jew or Gentile. We know from the book of Leviticus, in chapter 11 specifically, that there was laid out for the Israelites a long list of food they were not to partake in under the Mosaic law. They were to be set apart as a peculiar people for God. No camels. Well, I agree with them. But the reason was because it chews the cud, or does not, and, but it does not part the hoof. No pork. I have a little bit of a problem with that because it parts the hoof, but it does not chew the cud. These foods were to be unclean to them. There you have that word again, the word unclean. Depending which translation you use, you'll find words like abominable, idolatrous, detestable, which, oh, sorry, to describe what these foods were to be to the Jew. And so here is a Jew, probably a relatively new believer, who grew up adhering to this old law, And in his conscience, remember this passage is speaking of the conscience, that internal warning bell that says, this just doesn't feel right. This former Jew just doesn't feel right in outright abandoning some of his old dietary laws and still observes some of these ceremonial days such as the Sabbath. He is weak and for lack of knowledge is not fully persuaded in his mind of the liberty he has in Christ. But he's not burdened by these things. This isn't what his hope is fixed on. He is not as the Judaizers. Remember Galatians, it speaks of the Judaizers who desire to go back to the law and work for their salvation. Rather, he lacks the knowledge that would change his inward conscience 
toward accepting this liberty of eating and drinking. So the weak brother is abstaining from various food and observing days thankfully and joyfully unto the Lord. Look at verse 6. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. Boy, I shouldn't have used 10 font. He eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of God. John Piper says, They regard meat and wine as unclean because they believe eating meat and drinking wine will not glorify God as much as abstaining will. That's the key. They are looking to glorify God. He is perfectly at peace with his conscience and is glorifying God in his abstinence. But as we will see later, he is at risk of looking at the strong believer in judgment. Man, we chafe at that idea, the, the idea that somebody might think differently than we do on, on, on matters of conscience. It is vitally important that we understand what it is that separates the two sides. Who are the weak? Who are the strong? What is it that differentiates them? It is not faith versus works we are dealing with here. There is no strong rebuke from Paul towards the weak believer. Rather, Paul, as one who identifies himself with the strong, understands the issue as simply this. The weak lacks knowledge that would allow his convictions to change. And he is rightfully not going against his conscience. In other words, his reasonings for lack of knowledge. In verse 14, he says this, I know and am persuaded in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 to further illustrate Paul's train of thought here. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. <clears throat> and I'm sorry, I did not write a verse down. Then I will go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Okay, starting in verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, that there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. As fallen humans, we have this real tendency to take that knowledge and rather, rather than glorifying God for revealing that knowledge to us, we use it to exalt ourselves. I'm so smart. I figured this out. We can feel the need to proclaim our new knowledge in very loud, obnoxious ways. Maybe it's not regarding food or drink. That's not really a problem in our community for the most part. Varsh, for instance, is kind of a big deal here. But how about the observ observ 
sorry, how about the observance of days? Maybe it's Christmas or Easter or Mennonite holidays. Maybe it's fishing and hunting animals on Sunday. I had a cousin who was a born-again believer. He would not fish or hunt on Sundays. It was against his convictions. Things that are not sinful in and of themselves. Deep-rooted tradition from your past life. I think most of us have these things in our lives where we could easily argue constantly with other Christians around us who disagree on these matters. This immediately turns the focus away from our main goal. Our main goal is bearing with one another and loving them for the sake of Christ and to the glory of God. Paul's instruction here is welcome the weak, but not to quarrel over opinions. It's not beneficial. This knowledge of yours, don't use it at the detriment of your weak brother's conscience. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, uh, I believe we were just there, but uh, and I also forgot a chapter reference this time, but he says, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul had a higher purpose than the satisfaction of convincing his weak brother to go against his conscience. Even if his argument is scriptural and right, I kind of trust Paul in his convictions, but they should not be my convictions necessarily. He had no problem in giving up some of his liberty outwardly. If that would keep the weak from stumbling, oh, sorry, If that would keep the weak from stumbling, he had no problem in giving up some of his liberty. In Romans 15, verse 1, a little bit further, he reiterates the need to welcome the weak. He says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. And it is with that mindset that we are to welcome the weak in faith. Do we love our brothers properly whom we disagree with? You may be the strong Christian, and you can wholeheartedly stand with Paul when he says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But then you tend to forget the last part of the verse, don't you? It is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. I want to insert here, though, all this does not mean we ignore the issue, but rather that we approach it with much grace and love for our neighbor. We don't walk around in fear that everything we do will offend the one who thinks differently. We just don't parade our liberty in front of them to make a statement. It's such a matter of, <clears throat> such a matter of the heart here. Romans 15, verse 7 says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This welcoming is to be a reflection of how Christ has welcomed us. Which brings us to how did Christ welcome us? Romans 5, verse 8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God welcomed us when we were not in a perfectly sanctified state, I'll tell you that much. We were welcomed on one condition, by grace through faith in the atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Even that faith being a gift of God. When you read Paul's writing 
in the first few chapters on the doctrine of man's depravity, the first few chapters of Romans, and his inability, and come to understand them more, it ought to take away every desire to boast in yourself. It changes how you will treat the person beside you. If they are in the faith, though they are weak, they are equally as worthy of grace as you are. Should I say equally as unworthy? Receive them and rejoice in your shared salvation. Paul says in verse 17 to 18 of of Romans chapter 14 there, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So our first point is we are to welcome the weak, but not to quarrel over opinions on matters of conscience. Our second point and final point this morning is that we are to withhold judgment because God will be the judge. So back to our text, um, Romans chapter 14, the last two verses, uh, like verses 3 and 4. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Paul is telling the strong, don't despise the one who abstains. Another way to translate this would be, do not regard with contempt. He likewise tells the weak, don't judge the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. The strong with his knowledge has a tendency to get puffed up and look at his weak counterpart with contempt. He maybe can't stand that the weak person doesn't see things the way he does. And the weak brother is looking at the stronger brother and seeing him as irresponsible, perhaps taking his liberty too far. But the problem is your brother will not, be, will not answer to you for his conscience. Your conscience is not the standard by which he will be judged. Let's go to 1 Corinthians um, chapter 4. Oh, I have it here. Chapter 4, verse 3 to 5. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any other human, or, or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. We are to be just just judges in a lot of things, but we humans are not capable of seeing the heart of the next person. Instead of, instead of passing judgment on your differences of conscience, trust in God's ability to rightly judge him. To close our first four verses, we see a beautiful promise of God's power in his children. Here in verse 4, he says, The Lord is able. The Lord is able to make him stand. He is dunateo, I believe is the word, powerful to make him stand. I'll leave you with a couple of verses to close our study this morning. 
The first one is in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. I'll just read it for you. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And then Philippians 1, verse 6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I think it was Spurgeon who said this, the model of all true servants of God must be, we preach Christ and him crucified. A sermon without Christ in it is like a loaf of bread without any flour in it. No Christ in your sermon, sir? Then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. I hope if my sermon was just a big mess, a jumbled mess, I'm very new to this, I hope at least you saw the gospel in Romans chapter 14 in the first four verses. The gospel is both an indictment against the lost and the very power of God unto salvation for those who trust in it. From our justification all the way to our glorification. It is my hope that that is what I have left you with this morning. It is for the gospel that we are to be united in this body, to build one another up, to discipline one another and bear with each other's scruples. God will uphold the weak. It is he who makes us stand. Not our clever, oh, sorry. It is he who makes us stand and changes our convictions to make us more like him. It's not our clever arguments. We strong will not have a clever argument for the weak to change his mind. Um, it, it's God's work. Go to Romans chapter 15, verses 2 to 7. Romans chapter 15, verse 2 to 7. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Jesus died to save sinners, of which we in this room are no exception. If you are an unbeliever today, I beg you to cease your striving. The Bible says you are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. That suppression is a picture that I've often heard illustrated of holding a beach ball underwater. It takes effort. It, it, it wants to keep coming up. It will keep coming up. Sooner or later, you'll tire up, and that truth will just come back up. You know by the very law written on your heart that you are guilty. Some suppress the truth by turning to a life of partying and debauchery. Others turn to works in some hope to appease for their sin. You will miss the mark. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. That's where Jesus come in. A lot of the dietary laws we've been talking about and ceremonial days and things, they were, point, they were to point us to the Messiah. Again, it is all about Christ. He came down and lived a perfect life, then gave that life so that Jew and Gentile could be covered by his sacrifice. He is your only hope. And when you repent and trust in him, he is a powerful savior. Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, it says he intercedes for us. 
I believe it's Hebrews. But he intercedes for us to the Father on our behalf and said, and he says, I died for this one. That's about all I had for this morning. Thank you very much.